Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. So God's will for your life. God's will for your life. So what is it? What is God's will for your life? Kind of seems daunting to figure out, doesn't it? But I'm here to tell you, it's actually really pretty easy. It's pretty simple. And so right away here, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, about midway through the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to see how easy this is to figure out. We're in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 16. It's up on the monitor if you don't have your Bibles with you. But I would encourage you, as Rob does, if you need a Bible and you don't have one, please come see us, and we will get you a Bible. We want you to have that in your hands. So 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, that's it. We're done. You may have come here this morning hoping to find out what God's will is for you, and there it is. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now you know. Congratulations. Thank you for coming. The clock says I still have 35 minutes. So as with most things concerning uh, Scripture and God's Word, there's a beautiful simplicity to it. And it's a simplicity that allows even children to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also an incredible depth that brings mature Christians, Christians of, of all uh, stages, uh, that gives them enduring comfort and strength and hope and guidance. And so it's why the more that you read Scripture the better you know the God of the universe, the one who created us and sustains us and governs us. And the more you read scripture, even the the same verses over and over, uh, the more God reveals new things to you and I. Uh, How many times have you read the same verse over and over throughout the years, and yet all of a sudden you'll read it this one time, and wow, I didn't pick up that before. I had never made that connection. And yet, you had read this 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, and all of a sudden it brings out new meaning. That's the incredible depth of Scripture. And so we're going to take this short, seemingly simple passage this morning and learn why this is God's will for us and how we can live it out, how we can be expected to live it out. I mean, why is God instructing us to always rejoice and be joyful, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? How are we to be able to live this out? I mean, it seems like, I'll just be honest, it seems like an awfully tall task, almost like we have to be super Christians or something. Uh, And in fact, with all the 
trials and tribulations and, and various difficulties we have in our lives, it almost seems like it's impossible to do this. But I would say no, it's not. In fact, I would say it's just the opposite. I would say that for those who understand who Christ is, just the magnificence of his being, the greatness of, of the eternity that he promises us, his abounding love for us forever. He promises to love us forever. The lavish grace and mercy that he gives us. And those of us who have received the free gift of salvation, for those of us who were separated from him by our sin, that he has forgiven us, how can we truly desire anything else but to praise him always, to come before him in prayer at every opportunity, to sing his wonderful name at every turn? How can we not rejoice that he constantly knows us and loves us and cares for us so intimately that he is working out all the details of our lives that's for the best for us. It's an exact plan and purpose that leads directly to eternity in heaven with him after just a few breaths here on earth. That's astounding. And so how can we do anything but? Let's go to him in prayer right now for his word that we are considering this morning. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, we praise you, we rejoice in you, the God of heaven, who has given us his word. You have spoken to us, first by the prophets and the apostles, and then by your Son, your only begotten Jesus Christ, who is the living word. And you give us your written word that we can come before you and know you and know what you want from us and know how much you care for us. Would you please open our minds this morning to receive your message, your words. Let these words be yours, not my opinions. Let us all receive what you have in store for us and draw closer to you and worship you together. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so now we have before us three direct commands. And then the reason the reason why they are essential for life, for the life of the Christian specifically. And in many respects, they are intertwined. Uh, one sort of begets another. Rejoicing, prayer, thankfulness, they all stem from the same heart of gratitude of the believer. And these should be the hallmark of every Christian, uh, well, every person who calls Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior and sustainer. The power of prayer the power of joy and the power of thankfulness in all circumstances, they lead a child of God to exactly the place where we are to be, which is bringing glory to God. That is, after all, our entire reason for existence. We are to glorify God in all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. We're created in his image. We are set apart or sanctified to become more like Christ and to reflect him in this world. And so we are told these three things, these three commands are God's will for us. God's will for us. For who? 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. That is, those who are believers in Jesus Christ and his atoning work, those chosen by God to be his children, those who put their complete faith and trust in the God who gives us his word and has forgiven our sins and saved us. Now, God's will, God's will. We think of that in any number of ways, but really there are two parts to God's will. One part is that which he reveals to us, uh, such as this passage here in 1 Thessalonians. He has told us this is his will. The other part of God's will is that which he has not shown us yet, but which he has determined will come to pass. It is still his will. And so we're going to discuss this two-part will a little bit more later on in this message. Um, But I want to just stop here and give you just a brief overview of it. For this 1 Thessalonians passage, God tells us what his will and what his desire is for us. And it's not just here. It's not just in this book. It's in 62 other passages in just the New Testament alone. Uh, So God has been gracious to tell us exactly what we should do to continue in the right relationship with him. This is his will that he's already revealed to us. And when he does this, and throughout the New Testament, when he does this, it usually has to do with his commands for our moral or moral precepts, our moral conduct. And as we follow these precepts, he gives us peace and protection. And a great example of this is in Philippians 4, where the Apostle Paul explains what the outcome is of a life of rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. He writes in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That was part of our scripture reading this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, the creator of, his, of the universe opens, his door, opens the door to his office, so to speak, to us 24 hours a day. And he invites us to stop in all the time, whenever, wherever we are, whenever we can, And as we do, he promises to lavish us with peace that goes far beyond what anybody can even understand. It's a peace this world doesn't even know. It's so awesome and complete and fulfilling. And look at what the text says. It also guards us. It guards our hearts and our minds. The very very fabric of our being is protected by Christ when we overflow with thankfulness, joy, and prayer. Now, you might say protected, protected against what? Well, here's what it says in the verse right before then in Philippians 4. This is in verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. So not only is being in God's will, being thankful, joyful, and prayerful, really fulfilling, it keeps our hearts and our minds from fixating on those things that bring us anxiety, worry, and despair. I'm not saying that 
as believers, we will never have worry or despair or anxiety. We will experience those things. That's, that's part of life. That's, that's part of not being perfect. We're not perfect. But when we take our eyes off ourselves, when we orient our thinking and our minds toward the extravagant love and the promises of God, then our lives are marked by a deep-seated peace and joy rather than nail-biting worry. The worry and anxiety does not overcome us. Now, the greatest thing of all is that God doesn't hide this from us. He tells us all over the place what he wants us to do. Jesus tells us himself to pray to God that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that people would obey God's will, his commands that he reveals us to on earth, that he reveals to us on earth just as they do in heaven, which is fully and completely. So be joyful always, be prayerful always, be thankful in all situations. God tells us this is his will. Be this. Notice I didn't say do this because I don't want you to think it's just a a rote obligation. I have to do this. But be this way in your heart and you are right in the will of God the Father in heaven, which is wonderful. Okay, so at the same time, God also has a will that he has not revealed to us yet. It's the things that we don't know. But we trust God to work it out because he says he will. Who are you supposed to marry? What job are you supposed to take? Where am I supposed to live? Am I supposed to move across the country? Should I buy this type of milk or this type of milk? Where am I supposed to be in 10 years? These things are left to God. He hasn't revealed those to us in in the pages of Scripture. But they are being worked out by him. He is sovereign. He is in complete control of all things. The psalmist says, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. You and I may not know the answers to these things, but who does? God does. Nothing is a surprise to him. It also shouldn't be a surprise that God knows more than we do. His ways are higher than our ways. He knows the end from the beginning. He says in Matthew 10 that he cares deeply for even the small, kind of innocuous things, creatures such as, say, sparrows. And yet he says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God promises that his plans, which he knows, are for our good and for his glory. So we can trust in God's plan, in his will that he has not yet revealed to us. And why? Because he promises it will result in what is best for us and for him. And so again, I will come back a little bit later and touch on this uh, again and explain it a little more. But for now, uh, let's turn to these three commands of God that he has revealed to us here. We'll look at his revealed will. The first one is in verse 16, rejoice always. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts, book of Acts, turn back a little bit, chapter 16, Acts 16, we're going to start in verse 25. 
This is a familiar story, but I want to highlight what is happening here. Paul the Apostle and his fellow missionary Silas have gone to Philippi. It's a city in a Roman colony located on the northeast end of what is now Greece. Paul and Silas are arrested for casting out a demonic spirit from a, a, a woman or a girl who's a slave. This demon-possessed girl, she's a fortune teller, and she brings a lot of money to her owners. And so once the demon is cast out, the owners get mad because their easy profit is gone. And so these people, they drag Paul and Silas before the local rulers, and they order the, order, they stir up a crowd, and they order Paul and Silas to be beaten. And the text said they had many blows inflicted upon them. In other words, they were beaten severely. They were probably, you know, close to losing their lives. And immediately after that, they're thrown into prison. Their feet were bound in stocks. Stocks was a, a device of torture. In this case, it just says their feet were bound in stocks, so they were, it probably immobilized them, and they had to lay back on a hard, damp, concrete floor, or stone floor, dirty floor. And so this is the setting as we turn to verse 25, and we read, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, let me ask you, when you sing hymns to God, are you singing because you're angry? Are you mad at people? Are you depressed? Probably not. We sing hymns to God when we're joyful. We sing out of joy. We sing out of gratitude. We are thankful for what God has done, and we are lifting up our voices in song to tell him that. Well, Paul and Silas here are in the worst imaginable position you could think of. They're bleeding and suffering physically miserable, but they consider their pains, and let's not minimize their physical pain. If any of us have been in physical pain, it really alters our thinking, doesn't it? And yet, amidst this pain, they consider that a little problem in the hands of a sovereign, powerful, mighty, merciful God. They trust that God's working out his plan, even in the midst of this suffering. What's going on, God? Why am I here? But they knew that God had displayed the same thing in, in the life of Christ. And so, sure enough... God immediately sends an earthquake, and that enables Paul and Silas ultimately to be able to share the gospel with the jailer of the prison and his family. Look at verse 32, if you jump down a little bit more in Acts 16, jump to verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, that's the jailer, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And so Paul and Silas are rejoicing even in the midst of great suffering. Are you? 
Am I? They don't know what is about to happen. Paul and Silas had no idea an earthquake was coming. But they are doing what God said his will is, which is to rejoice always. And then Paul and Silas are given the opportunity to share the gospel with those who may have never heard it otherwise. It was a divine appointment. And their rejoicing here is not fake or forced. It is genuine such that it flowed from their being. They've been saved from their sins when they don't deserve it, just as we have been. They know the mercy and the grace of God, just as we do. So their first inclination in this situation, as painful as it is, is to rejoice by singing hymns to God and praying to him. I'd ask you, is that our first inclination in difficult situations? Is this who we are? Is this our being? So let's come back to Philippians 4 again. It's a different setting, kind of. Paul is in Rome, but he's, in, he's imprisoned again. And it's while he is imprisoned that he writes this letter to the Christians in Philippi to encourage them. And I want to bring to your attention to the verse before the section we looked at earlier in Philippians 4. We go to verse 4 here. It says, Rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. By this point in his life, Paul has suffered unimaginable difficulties. He's been persecuted heavily for preaching the gospel. Less than three years earlier, he had been stoned and assumed dead, dragged out of a city. However, he recovered and he continued to share the great love of Christ, who had suffered far worse, by the way. And so he writes to the Philippians here to tell them to rejoice. The believers there are going through their own various trials just for being Christ followers, and Paul exhorts them, not once, but twice, to emphasize it. Notice how he repeats it to make sure that they don't miss it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. This has to do here with being mistreated for being a Christian. When you live out your faith openly, you will be mistreated. This world will push back on you. It's guaranteed. And sometimes that'll be harsh. And often it'll be for no good reason. It happened in Jesus' day. It happened in Paul's day. It happens now. It will always happen until he comes again and creates the new heavens and a new earth. We know it's not fun. It's not fun to be ridiculed for being a Christian. We know that. It's not fun for holding views that differ wildly with our, with our culture that we're in. But we have a direct line in Scripture that, reads from, that leads from suffering and ridicule to rejoicing in God's goodness. It kind of seems a paradox, but look at how Matthew frames it in his gospel account in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. There it is again. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are blessed. Blessed to be ridiculed? Blessed to be mocked? To be laughed at and scorned and maybe lose friends and lose opportunities? Yes. We can say we are blessed and truly joyful because look at what Matthew says. Your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Matthew's eyes aren't fixed on his problems here. So what if others in this, this life make life a little bit difficult? This life is short. This life is, in the span of eternity, our few years here are just like a breath. The Bible says they're like a mist or a vapor. But as believers, we are headed to an eternity of unimaginable joy and peace. When we look forward, when we have deep in our soul the knowledge of what is to come is glorious. We can, we can rejoice always. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. That's what Paul says. The sufferings here don't even compare. They're not even close to what is so grand and marvelous that await us. Well, Paul can say this. He's on pretty good authority. He was given a glimpse of heaven earlier in his life. Paul was actually given a glimpse. He shares in 2 Corinthians a revelation from God in which he is given a vision of heaven, actual vision of it. And this paradise is so magnificent, he can't put it into words. He says the surpassing greatness of the revelations are so grand that if he shared them, if he could even muster up the words to share them, others would think he were bragging or being conceited for having been so blessed by God, chosen by God to see this. So not only does he have not, not have the words, he, he, he doesn't want to come off as a braggart either. And so just seeing this glimpse of heaven helps spur Paul to withstand all kinds of the trials that he withstood. Now, we may not encounter what Paul did. You might not ever be stoned to death. Let's hope. Beaten with rods shipwrecked and lost at sea, starved, imprisoned multiple times, flogged. These are all things that, that Paul encountered. But perhaps we are just, maybe we're just wearied of life, kind of the mundane things of life. We're bored. We're just, what do I do? I, I don't know what's ahead. Where, where is this all going? Well, take heart. Rejoice. We have an eternal Father who has promised to grant us the surpassing greatness of heaven that is unable to be put into words. It's coming. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing for believers who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Rejoice. There is nothing on earth that can undo these promises of God. Nothing. Whether we live or whether we die, we have God's perfect peace. His promises are a certainty, as Luke is telling us, as we're learning through Rob's wonderful series in the book of Luke. God doesn't lie. 
He can't. It's not his nature. It's not in his nature. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. As such, his promises are true. His sacrifice is true. His resurrection and ascension are true. So are we going through something today? Rejoice. This resurrected Savior sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you and I. He actively, lovingly prays for us. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he prays for us. He loves us so purely and so actively and his cares so much that he presents us to the Father as his perfect bride. We are his perfect bride. We, the church, are his perfect bride. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. This is God's will for you. Now, corollary to this is praying. Prayer that the Thessalonians are told to pray without ceasing. And this is not an isolated command. Ephesians 6.18 says part of putting on the armor of God is praying at all times. Paul writes in Romans 12.12 that one of the true marks of a Christian is that he or she ought to be constant in prayer. And in Colossians 4.2, Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Daniel the prophet was known for his commitment to prayer, praying throughout the day, even at the risk of being against the law and facing a death sentence. King David declares that he prayed seven times daily. The implication being that he is regularly, constantly lifting up thoughts and prayers and communication with God. And that is the idea in this passage, to pray without ceasing. That's the idea. We're not expected to be on our knees. Okay, we're at our desks during the day. We're on the job. All right, I got to pray. Well, maybe, but that's not what's here. We're, We're not... To be, it, it doesn't mean that 24 hours a day we, we have to be praying. That's kind of impossible. We have jobs. We have lives. We, we have to do things. We have relationships to maintain. We have kitchens to clean. We, we have cars to keep up. And so on. So, no, this will of God is to always have a desire to communicate with him, to commune with him. It's to be so in love with the Lord that everything brings him to mind. Everything brings him to mind. It's to be so in love with him that you want to tell him what you're thinking. You want to ask him for guidance. You want to praise him for a scripture to come, that comes to mind. Or, or just say, wow, when you see his creation. It's to thank him for sustaining you through all things. To express wonder that he is with you through the toughest trials. He promises, I am with you. And it's really just being grateful that he simply gives you breath. You're giving me breath today, God. Thank you. So it's an inward desire of the heart. And it's so integral that... An early American theologian named Albert Barnes, he said, and I think this is is well done, he says, there has been evil done to the soul 
if it is not prepared for communion with God at all times, and if it would not find pleasure in approaching his holy throne. So be approaching God. Be ready to approach him at all times. Pray without ceasing. This is God's will for you. And thirdly, give thanks in all circumstances. So regular, constant prayer and deep-seated rejoicing all flow from a grateful heart. And it's clear that this does not depend on our circumstances. It does not. I'm the first one to say the circumstances of daily life have far too much effect on my outlook. It just does. And it may be the same with you. Circumstances definitely play a role in, in how we are. But let me ask you, what's the first thing that comes to mind when somebody asks you, hey, how was your day? Or how was your week? Do you think, oh, absolutely a joy for my Savior loves me and, li and lives? Or is it, well, let me tell you about this thing I got going on. Or I'm so tired. Or my kids just drive me crazy. Or let me tell you about my body. Yeah, that's probably more like it. But it should shouldn't be. It's said that the glory of the gospel shines forth from a Christian's life in the way he or she responds to suffering and opposition. So the glory of the gospel shines forth in how we respond to the circumstances of life. Suffering, facing opposition and hostility, that's when your gratitude and your thankfulness, your true thankfulness in times of crisis display God's, God's glory on earth. And if we're honest, we could all use more rejoicing in the promises of God rather than fixating on the circumstances of life. In other words, dear brothers, dear sisters, take our eyes off ourselves for a change. Put our eyes on the Lord. Think more of him than of our circumstances. Consider the permanent goodness that we have in Christ the permanent goodness that we have in Christ rather than the transient, temporary nature of our current situation. I mean, we will have struggles, right? The Bible says we will not live trouble-free lives. That's a promise. <laughs> That's true. And it's tough for believers or unbelievers. That's the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But when we understand the Lord's working out all things together for our spiritual well-being, that the frustrations and the aggravations of this life are fleeting, that they do not last, then we can find gratitude even then and find it in a way that it just it naturally flows forth when we have God in the proper perspective. One pastor says, it doesn't mean that I have to be glad that I'm going through suffering now, but in the suffering I can be thankful because I know God is in control of it. When we do that, we are living out Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, where it says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given us. Now, I don't necessarily ascribe to the phrase, big problem, little God. Big God, little problem. Because some of life's challenges are legitimately difficult, no matter how strong a person's faith is. But I like that it conveys the proper position. We ought to make much of God. We ought to think far higher of him than of our lower, smaller earthly realm. We may have a big problem, but we have a much, much bigger God. Which brings us to the final part of this passage. For this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. I said earlier, there are two main facets to God's will. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God shows us exactly what we need to know and to do his will. Pray, rejoice, be thankful, love him, love other people, forgive others, share the gospel, and God will take care of the rest. We don't have to worry whether it's going to work out. It will, okay? It will work out. God promises that, and God always keeps his promises. Think of Joseph. Joseph, the, the favored son of Jacob. You know the story, how he's his father's favorite, the favorite son. But his brothers don't take too kindly of that. In fact, they end up hating him so much that they want to kill him. But instead, they become nice and they just sell him into slavery. And he winds up in Egypt. Boo. But Joseph obeys God's revealed will not to sin. God prospers him, and Joseph winds up being put in charge of everything his master has. Yay! Uh-oh. But then his master's wife tries to seduce him. Boo. But Joseph obeys God's revealed will not to sin again and refuses her advances. Yay! Oh, but she lies to people, and she frames Joseph. So his master has him thrown in prison. Boo. And on and on and on and on it goes. Joseph's life continues his patterns of ups and downs, big ups and big downs. He doesn't know what's coming, but he's faithful to obey God in what God reveals is his will in whatever situation he finds himself. And who works it out? God works it out. Joseph himself eventually sums up God's will when his brothers, the ones who had sold him off, thrown him into a pit, they ultimately ask him for forgiveness. And Joseph sums it up by saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Wow. You see, God is at work in all things for his children's good. We may not think it's good for us at the time. I would guarantee, I can stand here and say a lot of times, we don't necessarily think it's good. 
But God has a much longer-term vision than you and I do. Much longer term. Do you think Gideon knew what God was up to when God told him to reduce his troops from 32,000 men to 300 to take on the Midianites, the vast Midianite army? He didn't. And Gideon was a flawed guy, just like you and I. But you know what? Gideon obeyed what God told him, and God gave the victory without them, even those 300, even having to fight. The Lord will bring his, his plans to pass. Will you hop on board? He tells us our part. He tells us his will that he wants us to know and do. And then he tells us to trust in him for the rest of the plan. That's his secret will, as it were, as it says in Deuteronomy. It's the part that he hasn't yet told us how it's going to pan out. But he's, he tells us, just trust him. In the book of Numbers, Moses sends 12 spies, I'm sorry, 12 Israelites to spy out the land of Canaan that has been promised to them. Of the 12, 10 come back fearful. They say, man, there's some big guys there. They're big and rough and mean. And by the way, those cities, they're really fortified. I, we're going to be overwhelmed. I'm just, that's what 10 of them say. Caleb and Joshua, two of those spies, they come back and they say, no. They see it through the eyes of a God who is sovereign and in control and keeps his promises. Caleb and Joshua don't know exactly how he'll do it, but they know God's promised them the land, and he's brought them to that point, and so they keep their eyes on God rather than man. They declare, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us. And ultimately, God enables Caleb and Joshua to see the land, whereas he puts the faithless spies to death by the plague. You see, God tells us our part, and he tells us to trust him with the rest of his will. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And finally, the passage in Thessalonians closes with the words, In Christ Jesus. Jesus is the source for obeying God's will. Remember, Jesus says the ones who abide in him, the ones who continue in a daily, personal, intimate relationship with him, they will show themselves to be his true disciples. But this is only possible in that relationship with Christ. For apart from him, you can do nothing. The moment we give our lives to Christ, the moment we accept his work on our behalf, when we repent and we place our trust in him is the moment that we have the capacity to fulfill the will of God. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Trust him. Do his will that he has revealed to us and trust his secret will.
as the worship team comes up, I want to leave you with this. My fellow Christians, Christ has given his all so we can give him our all. We can rest in the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ has accomplished our salvation and given it to us as a gift. And then he gives us a perfectly accurate roadmap of how to live it out. So why is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 God's will? Because it shows what God's value. It shows what God values. And it shows the heart of a believer. God sees the heart, not the surface. A constant desire to rejoice, pray, and thanks testifies to a believer's heart toward God. Why is this God's will? Because it brings glory to him and peace to us. This is why we were created, to bear God's image, to become more like Christ. In rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks always, we are smack dab in the center of God's will. There is no better place for a human being to be. Give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you give us your magnificent word so that we can know you. I pray that we would all worship you, worship you deeply, draw close to you, know you in all circumstances, that you are there with us. Even in the toughest times, you are there. You are a, a better friend than the best friend we can imagine. You are with us and you care so much about us that we don't even know how loving you are. It's that depth of love that sustains us through all things. Would you enable us to rejoice always? Pray constantly and without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. We thank you that you have revealed to us what you want from us and what brings us good and you glory. We thank you and pray that we would live that out this week. Jesus the Christ, your only begotten. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.